Probably the most destructive economic force at play in South Africa right now is load shedding. And it doesn't help that the same disease that crippled ESCOM, which, I don't know, would you call it the three horsemen of the economic apocalypse? What would the three horsemen of the economic apocalypse be? Corruption, inaction, ideology. I think that's quite good, actually. Corruption, inaction, ideology. I've just made it up. The three horsemen of South Africa's economic apocalypse. It runs through many institutions. Corruption, inaction, and ideology. Not the three visitors you want at your Christmas table. They infest so much of the fabric of the entities upon which we would love to be able to rebuild a brand new economy. Certainly, energy certainty is very, very critical to that. The issue of logistics and security for both companies and individuals. Those three things kind of underpin failure across so many entities. But let's get back to the focus on power cuts this evening. And when Eskom Sapush first started, I pictured it being started up as part of a barroom joke. Uh, but we're 17 years into load shedding and nobody's laughing anymore. It's part of our everyday lives. The co-founder of Eskom Sapush is Dan Southwood-Wells. And Dan is with us this evening on the line to us from Cape Town. And Dan, I, I wonder, as we look back at the year that has been in terms of 2023 and the devastating numbers that you guys published recently on the effects of load shedding, it does come to, what, 283 days of load shedding out of 300 and, what, 57 so far or thereabouts. Hi, yeah. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's it. Uh, it's been at 82% more than uh, 82% of the year has been load shedding. If you had to add up all the load shedding stages that we've had of the year. So that's, that's quite significant um, compared to, to what we had last year, um, which was, uh, you know, 86% less. Um, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it's it's 154 days at the very disruptive stage three and four, 22 days at stage five, and a massive 45 days, 45 days at stage six. But at stage six, mm-hmm. everything begins to fall apart. Everything begins to wear down. Every Everybody's yeah. sense of humor about load shedding evaporates completely. Uh, and I wonder just how, in terms of whether you see anything in the data that suggests a very low point at some point this year and things have been improving since then because certainly it hasn't felt like it. Uh, we we definitely did. So September was a very difficult month for all of us. Uh, we we had a, a big hit of stage six within September. But coming to back into October, things things improved. Um, and, and now actually that we're in December, it, it, uh, things are, are drastically different to what they felt like last year. If you look back to December 2022, um, I, I can't remember the, the numbers offhand, but we had the number of, of stage six days in September in, in December last year, and and you know we had load shedding on Christmas Day, and this year I, I don't want to jinx it, but it looks like we're we're going to be free in, until January. Uh, and, and again, and we laugh about it and we joke about it. And uh, the your app is set is is now world famous, courtesy of Richard Quest and his visit earlier this year when he went. They've even got an app for load shedding and got terribly <laughs> excited about it. Um, what 
Is there any way of telling from the data, because you are data gatherers here, what mm. is causing this to shift? Is it an improvement of capacity at ESCOM, or is it the fact that we are simply, by virtue of the fact that power is being privatized and you know anybody who can is putting solar PV on an office and on a factory on and on their homes, that actually we are alleviating the burden on ESCOM that is making the difference? Mm. I, I, I'm by no means an, an energy expert, but from what I can tell at, at the current time is, is demand is, is drastically lower at the moment. Uh, solar PV is, is hugely increased compared to at the same time last year. I think there's uh, from ESCOM's numbers that they've released, which which seem to be um, you know pretty accurate. It's over five five thousand megawatts of solar PV that is impacting you know, right, in the middle yeah. of the day. So, so in the middle of the day, uh, that demand is, is gone from, from ESCOM's network. And then also the, uh, the, the power stations at the moment are performing particularly well, um, which is, you know, helping the situation. Certainly very encouraging. I mean, it took you six years to start ESCOM's a push. I think you know, load shedding kind of starts in this time in 2008. Uh, we start, we come back from our holidays and suddenly all the lights are off and it was just the darkest and most depressing time. It was catastrophically awful. I remember yeah. that feeling of despondency so clearly. But it took you six years uh, to start ESCOM's a push. Was it, as I suggest, a barroom bet? Did you guys go, <laughs> did somebody lose a bet? What, what, you guys were both building apps for banks at the time. Yeah. How did the, in, the origins of the app emerge? In, in 2008, 2009, um, when we had load shedding uh, for the first, first time, I was actually in university and, and I was one of the persons you know, running out and buying a gas bottle so I could make myself tea before running to lectures in the morning. But um, uh, when we made the app, it was it was out of the simple premise of should we stay in the office for two more hours or should we go home now um and and you know you know will we have more more lights at the office by spending two more hours there or should we go home now and you know potentially cook dinner early and then it just it escalated from that Harman and and myself we had uh, experience building apps uh, for, for banking clients at the company we were working for. And we said, oh, you know, there isn't an app for this. We should build an app for it. And, and we did it out of something that would be useful for us. And, and lo and behold, it was useful for a good chunk of South Africa. And now nine years later, we're, we're close to 8 million users. And on, on a stage six day, you know, 3.7 million of them come online. It's, 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 it blows my mind every day um, that we're we're helping um, people get through the situation. And and to get back to your earlier point, yeah, stage six is, is tough. But it's interesting because stage one to four, it it feels like people can deal with it, and and that's an interesting place that we're at. Uh, that we can deal with it, and we're okay with it. But stage six, once you start getting those four hour slots, you're like, whoa, this is challenging no, no. now. No, exactly. And then government's got the temerity to say, you know what, you mustn't recharge your batteries as soon as the power comes on because that drains too much from the grid. And then you just yeah. see absolute different shades of 50 shades of red uh, on, on that on that one. Absolutely. You you start this thing out. You then, like, like naughty little schoolboys, go, I know because it's a push function and because it's about ESCOM, let's do the lovely double entendre and not call it the load shedding app or something grown up. You go, 
Let's call it. Let's call it a push uh, because it's yeah. hilarious, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and we 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 sat on the name for a, for a couple of days, and we 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 said, oh, you know, is it is it a good one? And and ultimately, it is. It's exactly what you said. It's push notifications for ESCOM uh, load shedding, um, and and people come for the funny name potentially, but they stay for the really uh, for the accurate data. And and that's that's our mission at the end of the day is information is power and we try and make sure that the information that we share is is publicly verifiable and, and accurate to the best of our knowledge. Yeah, because and, people need to plan their lives. That's the revolution here, because when it started out, I don't think it was that sophisticated. I don't think it was that reliable in the beginning. You were kind of tapping into grids, but then stuff would change. And now almost moment mm. by moment, I, I don't know how you've managed to plug into the the, the the huge variability of stages and regions and areas and all sorts of stuff. But you seem to be really plugged into um, the, the ESCOM mainframe, which probably runs on batteries. But you, you seem to have plugged in very successfully to sufficient data points to get absolute accuracy. Um, I, I haven't spotted a time where it's been wrong, but certainly you know, the vast majority of the time. Well, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're a company of, of three people um, that have been full-time on this since the beginning of 2022. Um, and we made our first hire actually out of the, the outside of Hadamon and myself in April this year. So we're three people that are working on this 24-7 and literally 24-7. Um, we've, we've set up systems that alert us, you know, if ESCOM changes stage in, in the middle of the night to wake us up so that we can let let people know. And it, it comes down to it's always publicly verifiable sources. We we have no secret handshakes. Um, there's no, no back office deals or anything like that. We We are a member of the public. Um, and we use only public data. We we don't push anything that's um, anything that we we learn over a WhatsApp chat or or anything like that or anything that's hearsay because we don't want to be labelled as misinformation. We only want to push um, reliable, verifiable information. So for the last two years, you and your business partner, Herman Moritz, have been working on this full time. It implies that it's making money. How does it make money i've seen some advertising is it all advertising because you've now got this huge community of deeply dependent and addicted users uh so to to answer your question yes uh we're we're a very big publisher of advertisements and even though uh we encourage users to get into the app and get out of the app as quick as possible so they can find out their load settings and go on there with their day um unlike a, a another advertiser publisher say like a a news site that wants to keep the user on for as long as possible. That very quick impression of an advert um, helps to keep our lights on. And and by no means is it, is it ludicrous, but we, we are managing to keep three people afloat, which is really great. No, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolutely amazing success story. And a bit like the guy who started Wordle because his girlfriend liked Word games <laughs> and sold it to the New York Times, I think, for a million dollars. I mean, is, is, there, is there an idea that this is something that can be leveraged into other spheres? I know that you've done, you know, you, you, you based on this idea that knowledge is power. And at some point, mm. load shedding is either mitigated to a point where people no, bother, no longer bother to look at an app to get the load shedding schedules. If this is going to be sustainable, it's got to have other applications it's got to be able to be used in in other aspects of life 
Absolutely. So, uh, as any other South African, uh, we wish load shedding away, um, but we we also, as a company, we realise that we've got to we've got to you know move along to to something else that is useful. So, if you're within Cape Town or Johannesburg, um, you'll start to see alerts within the application now, and we're starting to alert people um, within specific regions of different outages. So whether it's planned or unplanned, and that's things like water outages, which is very topical in Johannesburg at the moment. Yep. Um, and then also municipal outages, uh, whether it's planned or unplanned, water, electricity, and then we'll potentially look at other other types of outages as well, things like internet, um, road issues, things like that. So we're, we're very good at gathering uh, data from various different sources and making sure it's good. Um, and now we want to try and use all that data so we can push <laughs> to to people and, and make it useful, make it relevant for your life, and not and not be overwhelmed by the amount of information that's out there. Yeah, exactly right. And also having one place that you can go to as a source of reliable information, knowing that it's been verified and checked. For example, if you were in Simonstown today and you fancied a drive mm-hmm. to Cape Point, if you had the Escom's Push app on and you were doing traffic at this particular point in time, you might very well have alerted me to the fact that there are massive fires. Please don't try because the road is closed, for argument's sake. Yeah, yeah. It- Absolutely. So you'll you'll start noticing uh, publicly our, our brand is is still Eskom's Push, but we're starting to put uh, the the acronym ESP, and we're starting to use the acronym ESP. So we, we're trying to move away from the name Eskom's Push, but we know it's a good strong brand, and we're trying to use ESP more. And what does it stand for? Uh, no one really knows, but it can be you no, know, no, but it's, ESP, it's all about ESP information like and power. No, yeah, but exactly. Information, but ESP sixth sense, uh, extrasensory yes. perception. That's what ESP stands for. There was a exactly. 1980s and it's, and it's information at the right time. <laughs> exactly, yeah. it's information at the right time so you can plan your day for yourself or your business or your community. That's that's what's important. It's a fabulous tale, and I congratulate you guys. And I think we're all grateful, Dan, that you and uh, and uh, and your business partner, Hamma Marit, started this thing. And now you've got an employee number one or employee number three. Dan Southwood-Wells, the co-founder at Eskom Push, better known nowadays as ESP, picking up your sixth sense, your worries, your fears, de-risking your life, giving you the information that you need to make better decisions about your life, and really plugging into the multiple pain points that you feel on a regular basis. You don't know if it's scheduled a load shedding. You don't know if there's a pipe burst up the road. You don't know if your municipality has decided to switch off water or the water's been switched off by virtue of a burst pipe. So these guys are moving into every aspect of your lives. And it's brilliant. It really is. I mean, out of crisis, they say, comes opportunity. And that most certainly does fit very neatly into uh, South Africans taking control of a situation and saying, you know what? This is not great. There's nothing we can do in the short term to fix it. So how do we ameliorate it? How do we make it less horrifying for our for, for to deal with? And if you solve a problem for yourself, invariably, if the problem is widely felt enough, if it is widely experienced enough, you will find a business case for it. And I mean, Pablo tells us this stuff all the time uh, when it comes to actually solving problems for other people. Often, out of that emerges a great business idea. One of those is ESP. Eskom Sapush, the origins, and the fact that we had an astonishing amount, 86% more load shedding this year than in any other previous year. However, a peak most certainly seemed to happen in September, and since then, 
Things have been The Money Show. The Markets. And to markets we go to Patrick Matidi, who's the head of equities at Aluwani Capital Partners. Uh, Patrick, it was a pretty good day until quite close to the end, and suddenly the RAND had a fire lit under it. And I think that's what pushed many of our RAND hedge counters into the red, which caused the JSE to post a fairly modest 51-point gain by the close. Just take me through the play as it happened. Yeah, good evening, Bruce, and uh, always a pleasure to be on your show. As, as you mentioned, I mean, we did start, you know, positive, uh, largely on the back of the U.S. markets, uh, which had another all-time high session. Uh, but as the day progressed, you know, we slowly but surely fizzled off, uh, not closing, you know, pretty much flat, you know, as you mentioned. And then a lot of it, I guess, has to do with, uh, you know, what's happening uh, in the, uh, I guess, in the Middle East uh, around, you know, these are... Uh, uh, the, the blockages in the Red Sea and the potential for that to escalate, you know, into, I guess, another, you know, full-blown insurgency in that region. And we are seeing the oil price, you know, still ticking up, you know, for another session, uh, you know, an indication that perhaps a global trade that is being diverted, you know, the demand for oil uh, from the vessels, that could then spill over into inflationary pressures, you know, should that persist. So on the back of that, in the JSE is, uh, is, is, is flat, but the dollar is weaker, which then implies that the rand is therefore stronger you know, on the back of that news. Yeah, it's astonishing. I mean, this the, the, the blockage, and it's not even a, really a blockage. It's a couple of, you know, incidents of the Houthi rebels firing uh, missiles at ships in the, in the Red Sea, the entrance point to the Red Sea between Yemen and Djibouti. And it feels a million miles away. But because of that, the, the busyness of that trade route and because so much of the world's oil and gas supplies go through that narrow channel and many other products, I look at it and I say, if this thing isn't you know, nipped in the bud fairly soon, then many of the hopes that we are seeing about you know, inflation being resolved uh, in 2024 become threatened again, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is what the market is now starting to read into. And I think all eyes now will be on the U.S. government to see to what extent they respond and try and restore some order, you know, so to speak, you know, in that region in the form of, I guess, uh, you know, surveillance and that kind of stuff. But indeed, if that is not attended to immediately, then uh, you could see a whole spillover in terms of uh, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the unsettlement uh, in that space. Talk to me about uh, some of the moves that you've been watching on the JSE. It seems to have been a fairly choppy sort of, I don't know, indecisive couple of weeks on the JSE where one day financials are in favor, the next day they're not. The next day it's miners and the next day it's not. Then gold shares boom and then platinum shares boom. It feels a little bit sporadic and staccato at the moment. What, As you reflect on the year that we've seen, Patrick, how is it finishing? On a day like this, I mean, pretty much as you described, uh, you know, the plots are taking a bit of a breather after a run the last couple of days uh, with the financials, you know, stepping up largely on the back of uh, the uh, stronger rand. But if you look at the year to date, you know, certainly the platinums have been pretty much not trashed. Uh, if you look at some of the stocks, uh, anywhere between 60 and 50% down you know, on a day-to-day basis, a lot of it to do with the platinum price itself, but also, you know, the ongoing disappointment in terms of uh, China and the ability to can, uh, you know, uh, regrow the economy, that's playing quite hard on that sector. 
Uh, elsewhere, you know, oil is starting to look a little bit better. Uh, I guess on the back of the oil price starting to look you know, a, bit, you know, a bit stronger, but also, you know, pretty much down quite a lot on a year-to-year basis. Uh, the financials, it's a, it has been on a case base. Um, you know, if you look at that from the sector point of view, but a bit of the shine has been in the industrials where we have seen you know, a fairly decent numbers coming through. Uh, the likes of Bit, uh, the Bitcoin, for example, uh, one of the star performers, and, uh, and, and the likes of Nasdaq also, you know, not to be left behind, just given the restructuring that they announced earlier on in the year. But overall, Patrick, Bruce, the market uh, is looking yeah. flat, eh? Yeah, no, market's not all that exciting, I'm afraid. We're going to reflect a lot on it in the next half hour of the show. Patrick Matidi, thank you, the head of equities at Aluwani Capital Partners. Uh, we're with Gina Skuman, who's the economist at Citibank, and David Shapiro, who is uh, the global market strategist at Sasfin. We'll pick up on the themes that Patrick is alluding to in uh, the next 10 minutes or so. So any of the currencies had a much better day. To the pound at 23.09, that is 22 cents better than this time yesterday. Uh, 20 to the euro and also better off against the dollar at 18.23. It came as the UK published a better than expected inflation number with inflation coming in at uh, just below 4%, which is still twice as high as the Bank of England would like it. But another positive indicator on top of what the US Fed has been saying about bringing inflation under control, that rates will come down in the new year. When exactly in the new year remains anyway. Uh, we are going to uh, bring you this evening more with uh, Gina Skuman. Gina Skuman, of course, is the city economist at uh, Citibank and also David Shapiro. Uh, we're going to be doing that tonight here on The Money Show. You really do need your head checked if you're going into 2024 without at least some trepidation trepidation is probably the word that i will use uh it's not going to be easy locally or anywhere else in fact i mean 40 percent of the world's population which generates about 60 percent of global gdp will all vote in elections next year or at least have the right to vote in elections next year and that includes us inflation is coming down And just in time, I think, for most politicians in most countries to claim credit for bringing inflation down in their particular geographies. They'll argue they slayed the dragon, but interest rates are not going to reduce as fast. So that's going to be something of an encumbrance for them. Most households in most parts of the world are finding themselves more cash strapped than they have been at any point in the last five years or so, thanks to inflation everywhere and the fact that, you know, wages have not kept up with inflation, despite some pretty brave efforts in some countries. And in South Africa, as Azar Jameen was explaining last night, despite the fact that our economy is certainly creating jobs, it's not on the scale that the data suggests. Uh, but, you know, we also don't have much economic growth. So how sustainable is it? It's not all doom and gloom. Uh, David Shapiro, 26%, 27% possibly more on the S&P 500 this year in dollar terms. If we've broken even on the JSE in rand terms, I think I might just eat my hat. Um, it's been a really, really rough year for South African investors focused only on South Africa. Yeah, it has. In fact, we're probably down in dollar terms about David? 5 or 6%. So. Uh, if you're feeling no, a lot poorer, Bruce, the there reason you is are. You are yeah, I thought you were poor. hiding away from me, David. Now the fader is up and ah. you are with us, which is a huge relief. Trust me. Sorry. So I was warbling on about the U.S. being better than South Africa this year. And I think that's indisputable, right? It is. Um, as I was saying, um, we're down about 5 or 6% in dollar terms, whereas the U.S., 
is up about 25 or 26%. So there's a huge gap uh, between the two markets, and a lot has to do with the, uh, you know, the constituents in those, in those markets. You know, U.S. markets driven by technology. We're pretty much an old economy. Uh, the JSC is pretty much old economy. But, Bruce, there, there are a lot to, there's a lot to discuss within South Africa itself, I think, uh, which we can go into a lot. We scored a lot of own goals. But um, there are also other issues, global issues that have kept us back as well. So, but I think the, the biggest deterrent, the biggest uh, in, you know, inhibitor was the Eskom and Transnet stories, which I think has just held back any kind of development um, that we had. And that was reflected in the platinum shares, it was reflected in the coal companies, reflected in Anglo. So big difference between um, the two markets. I think, I mean, I don't want to use the term miracle too lightly here, but it does feel like something of a miracle that we're not the deep downward you know, sort yeah. of trajectory of, of of a recession here, David. I mean, the fact that we have had 283 days of load shedding this year, the fact that Transnet is not only incapable of running the trains effectively, but can't manage the ports properly, and we're you know, imports and exports mm-hmm. are the lifeblood of business. Um, the fact that we're not sitting in the depths of, of depression, never mind recession, I think is a miracle. Or is it simply the ingenuity and the creativity and the capability and the absolute resilience of the people who, who actually run this economy, which is the, the business sector? The private sector, absolutely. And I mean, the fact that we haven't gone into a deep dive is actually testimony to their resilience, robustness, whatever word you want to use. Um, I think there's one thing that I always have to bring up is that the, the, SA economy, the SA stock market, the South African stock market, is made up of about you know, 75% of companies who earn most of their money outside of South Africa. So you've got that factor in the JSE as well. But when we start digging down into SA, you know, SA Inc. stocks, uh, this, yeah, it's been a very, very difficult uh, time for them. But as you say, the resilience of those businesses, the resilience of the retailers, the banks have held up incredibly well. They've been you know, extremely well run and have showed no weakness. They, they haven't bowed to any kind of political pressure. So the banking sector, the financial sector remains very strong. And I think that, that remains the structure of any hope that we have got of pulling out of this, uh, you know, of, of the kind of situation that we find ourselves in. Bruce, the, you know, even if we are growing, even if we are flat, uh, these are not the kind of levels that can support ongoing sustainability of this economy. What the big fear is, and I think you've expressed it, is that something's going to crack. You know, something's going to eventually crack and uh, and 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 take away that kind of resilience or, or send us downwards. I think Gina's probably in a far better position to talk about uh, the underlying economy. Uh, than I am. I mainly exactly. watch the, you know, the stock market. Yeah, but um, but what you've said. But let's is talk. Right. Let's talk about the performance. Let's talk about yeah. the performance okay. here, because shares are cheap in South Africa and they are cheap yeah. because of all of the reasons that we know. Yeah. I'm going to be challenging Gina to actually not say anything negative uh, because any fool can say negative stuff. It's in, yeah. it's in our faces all the time uh, to try and find some silver linings to the, the dark cloud that looms over our economy. But when it comes to valuations, U.S. markets are considerably more expensive than shares on the JSE. JSE is cheap, but it's cheap for a reason. And I wonder 
wonder if there'll be enough reason to drive up the value of South African companies on the JSE in the new year. Do you see it at all? You've gone through many, many cycles on the stock market. Yeah, you've got to be very specific where you go to. And that's that's the danger. You know, platinum shares have come under considerable pressure. I think, Bruce, you know what scares me? And when Anglos came out with that report of cutting down on their production and the shares took a dive of about 10 13%, that, that shocked me. You know, the fact that a company of their size is saying, look, uh, you know, we're not here for charity. We're here to make profit. We have to tailor our business accordingly. Therefore, we're going to cut down producing what we do produce mainly in South Africa, which would be iron ore, which would be on the platinum side, you know, closing mines. When you start to do that, that's pretty dangerous and has long-term ramifications. Um, you know, if we look at Amplats, it was down about 40%, Sabania down 50% this year. So it gives you an idea of the punishment that we've taken. Um, you know, those are the ones. The other thing that worried me, which is not really South Africa, was British American Tobacco wrote off a huge amount of uh, from their Reynolds business, which also shows you this is a business that is, you know, slow. It's been dying for a long time. But I think we're starting to get to levels where we can no longer, I don't think we can rely on it, um, you know, too much. That share was down 22%. But I think where are we going to, you know, if we could only stabilize the economy now, and I think it's going to happen, and it's not going to happen because of us. I think it's going to happen because the world economy is going to start picking up. As you mentioned in the introduction, you know, rates are going to come down. We saw the so-called uh, Fed pivot, which is a suggestion that rates uh, are not going to stay up, you know, too long. They'll stay up uh, longer, but not too long, and somewhere by by second quarter, third quarter of this year, we'll start to see rates falling in the U.S. We're going to see rates falling globally, you know, as um, in South Africa as well. And all of that starts to filter down to the bottom line. It gives consumers a, little, a lot more money to spend and so on. So I think around that is going to be our hope. And, you know, talking fast, I think the other hope is that we start to see China pulling out of its downturn and starting to spend again uh, on commodities and starting to see you know, bulk commodity prices uh, pick up as well. So I think that's where the hope lies, or that's where the positive uh, news lies, in that the world economy will start to pick up us and, and give us some kind of support to build from there. David Shapiro, thank you very much indeed. David Shapiro is at Sassfin, of course. Uh, Gina Skuman, the country economist at Citibank, also standing by. We'll chat to her in a moment, see whether or not she concurs with David's uh, positive view on the global economy and whether or not that trickle-down will have that same positive effect on us in 2024. Cape Talk. Bruce is on The Money Show. To Gina Skuman we go, and earlier on I was uh, connecting to you, Gina, saying the economy is most certainly down, but is it out? Is it out? Uh, Good evening, Bruce. Um, I wouldn't say it's all the way out. I guess from the beginning of the year, you know, most of the consensus expectations around GDP growth was for it to be somewhere around zero, and it looks like it's going to be slightly above 0.5. So, you know, but that feels like we're just grasping at straws here. It's not completely out. We've had... And I heard you were going to challenge me on the negativity. So um, if we think about this year, some of the biggest surprises, um, and, and they're easy to, to be known as surprises in hindsight, but, you know, in South Africa, inflation, 
um, was faster care than expected. And that's coming obviously from a lot globally, but also obviously the supply side constraints of local issues. And then, of course, how South Africa quickly stepped from just local political uncertainty into geopolitical uncertainty. I think, you know, those are two factors that start to weigh heavily on your country risk premium. And a country risk premium that's elevated is is never an easy thing for any emerging market. The silver linings, and I I know you were looking, um, asking David about this, but, you know, if we think about this year and you think to ourselves, well, what could the silver linings be? Well, they're always born out of crisis. We know that. And, And I'll give you roughly four. So number one, Load shedding, obviously, the biggest factor that's dragged us down this year. Maybe not as much as people thought, but that has spurred on huge amounts of renewables. And again, you know, it it links back to probably the second factor of the private sector being as resilient as you were speaking to David about a lot of these being very large scale private sector uh, corporations. I don't think this was an easy year for small businesses. And then the second one would be going to the other SOE, Transnet. Um, and yes, it is a big problem. It is likely to disappoint before, obviously, we see success. But I'm not sure if it's going to be ignored like ESCOM's problem was for a very long time. You just can't hide things as easily in South Africa anymore. So hopefully that will spur on some type of solution a lot quicker. The third one would be a very strict central bank. And yes, that is a very good thing. Because, you know, I, I spoke earlier about how inflation was sticky and difficult for longer because we have all these inefficiencies. And obviously a silver lining is that you don't want a central bank that's going to give in um, very easily to any political sway or, yeah. or these inefficiencies not taking them seriously. And then, uh, oh, that actually was the whole thing because I took the private sector resilience <laughs> and added it into, you know, with the renewables. So it's not all yeah. bad, but we're still below our population growth in terms of actual economic growth. And that is still a very bad thing. No, but that's the point, Jajin. I mean, we can nitpick around, hey, look, we've got we've got 0.5% growth. You see, we're not in recession. In real terms, we've been in recession for most of the last decade and a half, simply because population growth has outstripped our economic growth. And so per person, um, everyone in the country is just that little bit poorer. And it takes a long time to rebuild any business, any system, and particularly a country when a society has been dismantled in the way that South African capacity has been dismantled. But in that, I wonder if there is an opportunity for recovery as well. Because if you look at the signs of life in eight of the 10 industries that did grow earlier this year, manufacturing and finance and real estate, there are some really bare bones of growth opportunity, provided you can get electricity, provided you can make sure the water keeps running out the taps. Just the basics. I mean, I'm not asking for too much here, I don't think. And get stuff moving on trains and ports. Um, You know, sort those few things out. And suddenly, not only does the mindset of the country change, but the ability of the country to build off the back of functioning state-owned apparatus begins to, to work better. Yeah, well, absolutely. Look, next year, again, you know, we're talking about decimals here, but much of the reason why people are expecting above 1% growth finally in South Africa is because of that very low base. But I must warn you that next year is really a, it's a, it's a year of two halves. The first half of the year, you can't expect much to be done other, other than what a government who is very desperate to remain in power 
might need to do yeah. in order to stay so. So the elections, obviously, and we don't even have a date yet, but assuming it's going to be around May, you know, that takes out the first half of the year. And we have to be very careful because it's going to be very headline-driven, very noisy. You know, the currency always, you know, rides off the back of that. And, and you can't get any serious... Um, decision making, um, other than, of course, let's see what happens with Transnet's plan. But, you know, come seeing it in fruition is not going to happen over the next six months. I would say where you have a chance to see some better type of growth, or at least the composition, is in the second half of next year. Because you're going to, when I say you're going to, I still have to touch wood when I say that sometimes as an economist, but you really are go- going to have to see inflation coming down. This is in the absence of no massive supply side shocks like an oil price rise or whatever. But the oil, uh, uh, the inflation going down the second half of next year will help consumers. There's no doubt about it. And we do expect the South Africa Reserve Bank to be able to reduce rates. I'm not saying it's going to go on a cutting spree, but it will be able to reduce rates from what's currently defined as restrictive to what we think will be neutral. And that's about 100 basis points. So a full percentage point always helps the consumer's pocket. So that's the consumer side of the economy. But I think where people are really starting to get a little bit more excited, however dampened now slightly by Transnet, is the second half of the year starts to really show us what did this electricity crisis do in terms of the response for renewables? How resilient is this country actually in the second half of 2024? Will ESCOM's generation repairs and maintenance plans be able to put load shedding behind us? If that is the case, then private sector fixed investment does have a slightly better chance in what we've seen over the last 10 years. And then at least for the first time in a long time, you're going to see both sides of the economy starting to do something. Now, if you had asked me for probability of that, it's lower than what I would have said earlier on, um, simply because we are very worried about Transnet. The logistical constraint from this yeah. economy has picked up substantially than where I think anyone would have put it earlier this year. But I think second half of next year is at least something we can look forward to um, without huge amounts of fear. Good on that particular front. And I just I, I look back at this year that we've had and I go, thank goodness for the Reserve Bank, because I think without sensible management of the Reserve Bank, and we see continuously the political rhetoric like we do around uh, NHI and the populist nature of politics, particularly as we go to uh, an election year and this desire to nationalize the Reserve Bank and assuming that once you do that, you can start declaring what the Reserve Bank should and should not be doing. But we've avoided an Argentina and a Turkey style sort of economic blowout by virtue of the fact that the Reserve Bank, despite much criticism, has has held true. And it's made life much, much tougher for us in the short term. But my goodness me, without it, I feel we would have got in ourselves into a, a terrible mess. No, I, I cannot agree with you more then. I, I know it's hard for consumers to see interest rates remain high and obviously get higher. But if you look across emerging markets, there are very few central banks like the Central Reserve Bank that are taken with huge amounts of respect. And the bottom line here is something that the governor has reiterated time and time again. Interest rates being high, being restrictive, are obviously painful. They're painful for everyone, but obviously the higher up income chain you go and the more variable rate credit you have, um, the the more costly interest rates become to you. But inflation, inflation is what hurts every single person in this country, and more so those who are dependent on your 
more non-durable goods, food and fuel, um, taxis, etc. And that side of our population is hugely more vulnerable and obviously much larger in size. So if you're thinking about social stability, if you're thinking about financial stability, you know, the South Africa Reserve Bank is doing what it needs to do to ensure that we have stability in both of those areas of our economy. Gina Skuman, thank you very much indeed, the country economist at Citibank, and to David Shapiro, who's the global equity strategist at, uh, at, uh, who's got more years of experience uh, than half the market put together. He's at Sassfin. The Money Show. Business Unusual. We're all familiar with the idea of a toxic workplace, one that's so mired in politics and internal dysfunction. People actually actively dislike and undermine each other to a point that it affects performance of the group as a whole. But what about something called toxic positivity? Now, Sipiwa Moyo, I am unaware of this idea of toxic positivity. Explain that, please, before you tell us about its trials, tribulations and dangers. Good evening, Bruce. I also learned this one uh, um, the, the hard way. If you if you can imagine this <laughs> with me, and this is a true story. Uh, one day, uh, my daughter, who is 14, comes back from school, and, and I ask her, how was school? And she says, school was fine. So uh, me, I say to her, come on, baby, just fine. Surely it could be amazing, brilliant, and so on. So she says, dad, but school was not amazing, and it was not brilliant. What is it with this toxic positivity thing? And, and and I think she was right. The idea of toxic positivity is that excessive and often insincere promotion of positive emotions. Let's just be fine. You'll be fine. Let's be positive. Your attitude is everything. Be grateful for everything you have. And, and, and what it does, it unfortunately, it invalidates any negative emotion or experiences that we could be facing in life generally, but also in the workplace where we feel so pressured to only display positivity regardless of our true feelings and experiences. It, it, nobody likes uh, nobody likes the negative one. I mean, you know, there's so much negativity around that when you meet people who are positive, and you don't want people who are delusional, you don't want people who are away with the fairies, but you do want people who have, who are able to, I think, manage the negativity in their lives in a way that makes you think, well, hey, they seem to be better adjusted than 90% of people I meet who are despondent all the time, who believe everything is broken, who believe nothing can ever come right. Um, And I wonder in the workplace if there isn't a, a usefulness to an element of positivity, if not complete and utter delusional positivity, which can can become, I'm sure, toxic because people then stop believing that this person is is real in any way. That's exactly why um, it, it, it comes from a really, really good place. We, it's really amazing and good to speak to someone who's positive. If you think about the context of our country, for example, this, this, this year we've had so many headwinds and it's just easy to just be whining all the time. So, so then if you find someone who is positive, who's able to at least reframe some of the negative experiences and see, I guess, the bright side, it really is good. We all want to who at least are able to, to see that silver lining or able to be positive. And that's where it's very, very tricky because although genuine positivity 
um, involves acknowledging and validating a range of emotions. It actually includes both the positive and the negative ones. So, so that distinction between, I think, what we can call genuine positivity and toxic positivity is, is an important one because the toxic one suppresses emotion and it leads to burnout because then it hinders what we call authentic connections. But there's really no doubt that it is really pleasurable to to be with someone who's able to process whatever emotion that they're going through but leans toward the positive aspect of life, which is why uh, we get a lot of pushback when we talk about toxic positivity in the workplace because people are like, what are you talking about? We need more positive people than we need negative people. I'll give you one real world example. I remember having a conversation and I knew what his answer would be because I know him well enough to know what his answer will be. But when Gidon Novik, during COVID, when the Mm. business rescue of SAA was in place and Comair and Kalula and Mango had gone down down the toilet um, and uh, Gidon Novik uh, comes on and says, I'm creating a new airline called Lyft. And I said, what's wrong with you? You know, What's wrong with you? And he said, well, if you hang around with the sort of people I hang around with all the time, you can't help but be optimistic. Now, there is that sort of realistic optimism where you look at an environment and you say, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad. But those three bad things together create a new opportunity because I've got a really bright idea to fill in a gap that's been left by others there. And that can be that contradictory positivity, that useful energy. At what point, though, does it become what you refer to as toxic positivity, where it actually goes beyond realism and and the realistic expectation of the future? I think it's at the point where um, you would not acknowledge the fact that we've seen so many airlines starting and failing, at the point where you not acknowledge the mangoes and, and the SAA and the air link and you, you you simply work with the fact that you are positive and you can do this. I think that's what toxic positivity is about. So so what we call cognitive reframing, which is which stems from I guess, you know, the C B T technique which is used a lot in therapy, is about acknowledging that there are some obstacles that you can face. In fact, many people think optimism is about denying the obstacles, but contrary to to that what real optimism and and positivity is it's about acknowledging what you are facing and then choosing helpful options and i'm starting to say are there any opportunities that i can find in this kind of crisis that i'm finding in and then relentlessly taking action so that idea of being real and facing reality head on and being transparent and honest about the current reality and and also thinking about some obstacles that you can you will face the magic process is about after you've thought about the obstacles you think about the the ways to overcome those obstacles in advance and you even think about ways in which you can cultivate your motivation when you are feeling down that is real positivity because it is anchored on acknowledging the environment that you're finding in and then leading towards how you can overcome those obstacles and cultivating motivation in spite of those situations. Okay, so what are the common signs then? If we're, if we're in an environment and I don't know, our manager seems just a little bit mad, he's the David Brent, if you like, from the office, um, and he makes bad jokes and dances badly and is constantly you know, trying to talk everybody up and is actually failing terribly. What are the common signs of the, this presence of toxic positivity? What do we look out for? 
Yeah, I think I think when leaders uh, consistently promote this overly positive uh, facade, it discourages followers from expressing genuine concern. So you come and and give constructive feedback around a product, a system, a campaign that didn't work, but you are told that you don't allow that negative uh, 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 talk here. We're going to do this regardless. So it is to this uh, you you can't express genuine concern. You can't offer constructive feedback. You have artificial harmony where everybody's just getting along, and but everybody knows that we do have some problems that we need to find out. There's this lack of this uh, so-called psychological safety to, to raise concerns and ad- admit mistakes, and because admitting mistakes or talking about some of the downsides to anything that we want to launch is being seen as positive. So what then people then do is that people just don't talk anymore. So you have people who just keep quiet, agree with everything. You are thinking the positive, but there are certain issues that are just bubbling under because just like the office, you are, you are going home on motivating each other, everybody and making jokes with everybody, which creates a pleasant environment, but an environment where admitting that I'm a bit demotivated is not, is not allowed. Is it as bad? I mean, I'm assuming it can ultimately, it, it, it's maybe more, Maybe it's not as immediately obvious and it's a slower burn than a very negative environment. We've got this toxic environment that where people are trying to kill each other and destroy each other and trying to sort of climb over the corpses of the colleagues ahead of them uh, to get advancement. That's the traditional toxic culture that we're familiar with. This idea of toxic positivity is a slower burn. It's, a, it's almost a, it's a state of denial in many respects where nobody can point out the obvious shortcomings. Nobody's able to say, could not do this better because, oh, you can't be a naysayer in this environment. But otherwise, you're just a part of the team because this is all about team. There's no you know, grumpy in team. <laughs> there's no I team, there's no grumpy in team. It's true, Bruce. It's a, it's a slow open and, and that's why we get a lot of pushback from everybody saying, if we've seen toxic workplaces, uh, surely whatever you regard as toxic positivity is absolutely uh, allowed. And I think that's why it's a very, very difficult sell to say to leaders, please develop some self-awareness, recognize um, uh, and, and give people permission to experience and uh, to express their, 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 their authentic feelings at that time. Uh, when we tell them about this, it's very difficult to comprehend because uh, when you have toxic workplaces that lead to burnout, that actually lead to some mental health problems, people say to us, I'll take whatever you call toxic positivity any day. It's a slower burn, but it can lead to a culture of people who are just not interested anymore. You find that uh, you you put up an idea uh, and everybody can see that this leads to a cliff somewhere, but they keep quiet because anything, feedback or anything is just seen as as negative. It is a slower burn, but it can lead to a culture that is also toxic. It's such an interesting perspective, and I'm so glad you brought us to, to our attention. Skiwa Moyo, uh, who's an organizational behavioral specialist. Toxic positivity, who would have thought it? But yeah, as we enter a new year, the balance that you need to create within the workplace, that balance between being able to have full and frank discussions, not being mired in the obvious and the downside of everything, trying to find solutions to stuff. And so often, I think we err on the side of saying, well, if we're going to be miserable and grumpy all the time, we're going to keep repeating the sins of the past and we're not going to make any progress so 
Therefore, uh, let's try and be positive. And anyone who then says, but hold on a second, uh, actually, there's a problem here, there or everywhere, you then shut out and shut down. And eventually people start going, well, what's the point in speaking up? What is the point in actually me making a contribution here if every time I'm trying to make a contribution, I'm shut down? You don't want to be the Eeyore in the room, but at the same time, you don't want to be overly... T- the Money Show. Consumer Ninja. That is Wendy Nolan. One of the more gratifying moments on the show this year, Wendy, was when you highlighted that AIG South Africa, AIG is part of a big American multinational uh, in, uh, insurance company, the American International Group. They announced they were discontinuing fuel policies and it left a lot of people high and dry in terms of their funeral policies and no sooner did you do it but the likes of client health stepped in and said no don't worry no waiting times no no nonsense from us we'll pick up the slack on this one and i just thought to myself that was a wonderful proactive step by them but i wonder if there's an update on the way in which this is playing out for in the lives of people who have aig policies which are about to expire yeah indeed bruce so they were given notice in October that, um, sorry guys, we're we're. Uh, they didn't really give any any detail. Just you know, after careful consideration and strategic evaluation, we've taken the decision to to stop offering the the funeral product, and we're going to terminate your policy effective midnight 31st of January 2024, which is just over a month away now, and that left. Um, them with just three months notice before the policies fell away and they were told they would still have to pay last debit order 2nd of January given the public holiday on the 1st um, and that they would have cover up until the end of January if there was any capable event, in other words, if they died. Right, so the problem with that was as you know, most funeral policies have a six-month waiting period, which meant with just three months' notice, they were going to be left at that point if they tried to get alternative cover, they would be left with a three-month gap in cover and nobody really wants that on a funeral cover so yes as you said gratifyingly um we just uh, shared had that conversation on air and they came forward and said actually we'll we'll clientele, uh, clientele, offer clientele them. came forward yeah yeah clientele came forward and said we'll give you the same cover at the same premium with no waiting period and yes not you know a marketing opportunity but also nice that those people then had an option which didn't leave them three months high and dry. And I've asked them a couple of times how many people, you know, as a follow-up to share here, how many people took advantage of that? And I said, okay, I'll get back to you and I've already got an answer. But um, this week, this la- in fact, end of last week, I heard from John Faser who said he heard us speaking about this on The Money Show. He contacted clientele and he was asked to email them his existing AIG policy so that they could do a like for like. And he says, two weeks ago, I got a call from a consultant telling me that a policy had been issued, asked for my bank details. He did all that. And he was told that the new policy would be emailed to him. Didn't get it. So he contacted clientele um, end of last week and was told, actually, there's no record of his policy on their system uh, that matched his ID number and banking details. So he says, Clientel's offer to take over AIG policies expires at the end of this month, being December. I'm under the impression that the clientele offer to take over the AIG policies was a cheap publicity stunt. Can you kindly assist me with this? And this is the problem, Bruce, when there's that kind of hiccup, is that people get conspiracy theories. I'm sure you hear this all the time. Um, Oh, uh, If things don't go ahead as (laughs) they expect them to, you know. (laughs) 
So, yeah, so I, on Monday, a couple of days ago, um, I approached clientele for a response, which is never an easy task at this time of year. The person I normally deal with was on leave, but up to them, I persevered and I did get a response, which was we've attempted to contact all clients that indicated an interest in replacing their cancelled AIG policies. Unfortunately, there was a delay in the capturing of the details of those who chose to take up the offer of similar cover uh, due to the unique nature of the offer. So I'm reading through the between the lines there, Bruce, the marketing people didn't speak to the logistics people and make sure that there was some <laughs> kind of systems process yeah. there. The, the mechanics weren't in place. Um, and then I got Mr. Face's policy was part of the batch of policy documents that was only sent on the 19th of December, i.e. yesterday. And I, it left me wondering when that would have actually happened had John not raised the issue with us. Uh, but good for him. He confirmed today that he's got his document and all is in place and oh, he's good. very grateful. Um, so all's well that ends well. No, but it is funny. I mean, with all the best intentions in the world, yes, it's a marketing opportunity. Of course it is. They're not going to be, you know, you, do, you either do it quietly or you do sure. it publicly. They chose to do it publicly. And we celebrated it and we said, well done to you for doing it uh, and picking up the slack where people are really f- feeling very hard done by and then when you don't have the systems in place you better communicate really well that you're working on it because otherwise people will become suspicious because people don't trust companies i mean it's as awful as that sounds no. people just uh, feel hard done by it so often by companies because they think the companies are there out to get them and generally it's not mostly it's because things fall between the cracks as, as has appeared to happen here. Exactly. Well, the other thing that I, that I persevered in asking was because we news people like numbers was, so please tell me now, two months on, how many people have uh, responded? How many AIG policyholders have you, have you signed up? Um, and all I got was, it's worth noting that clientele continues to attempt to contact those clients that have been that have indicated uh. an interest in replacing their cancelled. Um, and um, we may extend the December 31 deadline for them to take up the option of a similar clientele policy. So maybe I'll get the number yeah. one day, but for now we don't know. But it is it, it is a good thing that they've extended that deadline. And and yes, I think, yes, as you say, marketing opportunity, but, but it did provide something tangible I mean, what's not to like? The same cover as you've been getting with no waiting period. That's the main thing. Yeah. Um, with exactly the same cover. But, um, yeah, these these uh, little logistical problems, um, as you say, people are quick to um, think the worst. I mean, uh, on, a, on a Cape Talk show this afternoon, someone wrote, uh, wanted to know about, uh, you know, big ads for this time of year, especially cut price appliances, got to the huge store, and no, they didn't have any. But yeah, we've got a. It was a fridge. Yeah, we've got one for a thousand rand more. And is that allowed? And I said, well, <laughs> it's called bait marketing. <laughs> it's called bait marketing. And yes. maybe they did have enough uh, on offer to kind of match the the ad they ran. And given how many stores they've got, maybe they did. Um, and they all sold out so fast because of the price. Or maybe they didn't. And I'm going to interrogate that because the act, because the protection act says. You know, you, you, it is bait marketing if you don't have a reasonable number of, of products at that okay. special available um, 
in the areas that you claimed they would, you know, that the advert ran, um, and and they could be held to account. They can be accused of bait marketing, and it's quite a serious thing. But as you say, sometimes it is, and sometimes it's a conspiracy theory when consumers feel respond to a marketing offer like this and any other, and then it kind of there's a glitch, and they don't get what they were promised, and then it's like, oh, you know, um, this is just like exactly. Uh, uh, no, uh, then uh, what, it what, undermines. What did, what did John call it? It undermines. Yes. It undermines your good intentions. Wendy Nola, well done once again. It's a fabulous end to a a horrible story. Uh, Client, I'll extend the 31st of December deadline. It's silly to put a December 31st deadline on anything in South Africa, frankly. Um, Extend it to the end of January at least. Tell people you're sorry that you're a bit slow uh, and move on. But uh, yes, Wendy Nola, our consumer ninja, making a difference in the lives of consumers each and every single week.